Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, gay boomers face the future as LGBTQ elders, transgender rights on the line with the November ballot question, and Bay State schools try a new history curriculum exploring themes about gender and sexual minorities. It's our LGBTQ roundtable. Later in the show, dads all over the country are using hairbrushes and barrettes to build a special bond with their daughters. We're celebrating Father's Day with dads building a special father-daughter connection through French braids and Afro puffs. A look at the special relationship between dads and daughters. But first, joining me from the studio to discuss the latest LGBTQ news, E.J. Graff, an award-winning journalist, commentator, and author, and a senior fellow at Brandeis University's Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism, where she researches and reports on gender and sexuality issues. Welcome back, E.J. It's nice to see you, Kelly. Nice to see you, too. Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, where he has led GLAD's legislative and policy work throughout New England. Hello, Jansen. Hi, Callie. And Mason Dunn is the executive director of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition and co-chair of the Freedom for All Massachusetts campaign. Welcome, Mason. Great to be here. All right. Well, let's jump right in because we are one week out from Pride Week here in, uh, you know, now uh, in Massachusetts. But across the nation, of course, we're in the middle of Pride Month. So we have a lot to talk about Um thinking about all the issues that that are highlighted in a month where you celebrate, actually, you know, culture and heritage. We're proud all year round. I know you're proud all year, <laughs> but this is a special celebration during the month of June, in case people don't know that June is the, is the designated month. So I wanted to start with uh, the recent mayor's conference, uh, which just ended, and the mayors decided to take a stand together to make a statement saying that the November ballot question, which is... Uh, facing Massachusetts voters in November is something that they strenuously oppose, and they were going to come together to say, um, we from across the country are offering support to the LGBTQ community here and hoping that people will pay attention and we're going to use our platforms wherever else we are to talk about this is a bad move. Jensen, why don't you uh, respond to that? Um, and I want to, you know, Mason as a co-chair to um, jump in as well, too. But, um, you know, cities have always been leaders um, on LGBTQ rights um, for decades. And we we're so happy to see the mayors come out in strong opposition to the, what is the first statewide referendum in our country to repeal transgender rights. And we are taking nothing for granted. Uh, transgender people have enjoyed protections in public spaces for the last two years, and it is imperative that we all work to protect those protections by voting yes in November. 
So um, as uh, Jansen indicated, Mason, you are uh, heading the Freedom Massachusetts campaign. There's a video on your site, and this is a bipartisan campaign committed to upholding Massachusetts non-discrimination laws, protecting transgender neighbors, family, and friends on the ballot this November. I wanted to play a little clip from the video you have on your site. When the law passed, and it was one of the most exhilarating experiences. I was so happy. I felt like everything, just like all the way, all of the fear of looking back over my shoulder was gone. Having full protections under the law makes me actually feel like I'm not a second-class citizen. So that says it all, I guess, <laughs> you know, in terms of your response to what's happening. Sure, it really mm -hmm. does say it all. And I think uh, going back to the, the mayors coming out in support, it really highlights the fact that this ballot and this vote has far-reaching implications across the country. What happens here in Massachusetts will have an impact on the lives of trans and gender nonconforming people from Massachusetts to California and everywhere in between. And so it's imperative not only for us locally to be working to uh, uphold these rights, but it's important for folks across the country to know about it and to be talking about it and raise awareness so that we can make sure to protect our rights here were in the state. You, were you surprised that the mayors decided to come forward and make a public stand as they did? Uh, you know, I was surprised. I was excited. I was exhilarated by the fact that this is getting the attention we so desperately need to make sure that we keep these protections. You know, EJ, I think um, some people may not know, because as you know, um, when we get into the campaign season, in the voting season, people don't really pay attention till we get closer to actually the date. So this is the November ballot. And I think people may not know that this is on the books, and now this is a reversal or an attempt at a reversal, this ballot I, question. I think it's beyond maybe. Mm -hmm. I think n people are completely oblivious. Um, Jansen and Mason were telling me as we walked in that um, at Pride, uh, at the parade, people, uh, most other LGB people, I don't know about T people, mm -hmm. but LGB people didn't know that this was up for repeal. It's very, very under the radar. How do you respond to that? I mean, what what is it... Um, why do you think that is? I mean, is just people aren't paying attention solely or that is people think this is settled, that they they just can't they can't process it? I think <laughs> this is a country focused on what is happening way above our heads in mm -hmm. D.C. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the this is uh, this particular issue is one of immediate and profound concern to a very small percentage of the population. And um, most people are absorbed in their lives. I mean, no matter what the issue, uh, this is not as um, explosive as, say, North Korea. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's just not hit the headlines. And there's a lot of news fatigue in this country, as you know. Oh, that's true. Mason, uh, the opposition says it's a question of safety. But those of you who are in support of the law as it stands say it's been here for two years and there is no evidence to show that their safety has been breached. Do you want to speak to that? Sure. I, you know, I think that it does this ballot initiative and these rights are important safety measures for trans people. Uh, the fact is trans people do face higher rates of discrimination uh, and issues in our world today. And making sure that we have these foundational legal protections is critical. I'll also say, as you mentioned, there is no evidence uh, from public safety officials that there is an increase in calls for safety concerns when we pass these protections. We've now had them since these protections since October of 2016, and there has been no market increase in uh, calls for concern in sex-segregated spaces like restrooms and locker rooms. Uh, and that's why 
public safety officials and organizations have endorsed our campaign to say that this not only doesn't make people less safe, it actually makes people more safe in public spaces. Uh, what I thought was interesting is that New Hampshire's governor has signed a law while all this is going on here in Massachusetts, the last state in New England, to sign a law to protect transgender rights. J Jansen, you're nodding your head. You want to talk about that? It's a thrilling victory. Yeah. I mean, you know, Glad and I have been working on passing transgender rights in New Hampshire now for almost 10 years. Um, and we did it in an entirely Republican-controlled legislature and with a Republican governor. And so what I think New Hampshire shows is that fairness and equality are bipartisan issues. Um, and that when you um, show that your state is being inclusive of all people, including transgender people, it only strengthens the state. So we are so excited that New Hampshire now completes New England as an equality zone. And you want to see Massachusetts go back. <laughs> exactly. And that's why it's even more important yeah. that we protect Massachusetts. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our LGBTQ roundtable guests, E.J. Graff of Brandeis University's Schuster Institute, Jansen Wu, you just heard him, of Boston's GLAAD, and Mason Dunn of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition. We're discussing the latest LGBTQ news you need to know. Now, something else happened in New Hampshire. There have been a number of initiatives, programs, laws uh, across the country proclaiming gay conversion therapy, um, something that putting in place that this works and that we can, in fact, take people who are gay and convert them. And New Hampshire signed a law banning that also. I'd like all of you to, to speak to what does that mean and where does that fit in the spectrum of these sort of laws across the country. Uh, Mason, why don't I start with you? Sure. Uh, and it's interesting to note, once again, kind of going back to the comparison of New Hampshire and Massachusetts here with trans protections, uh, that Massachusetts does not have a ban on conversion therapy, oh. whereas New Hampshire now does. Uh, so it's an interesting comparison there. Does Massachusetts uh, feel like it's implicit or what, what, what do you, what do you uh, Well, think? there's actually yeah. been efforts to pass yeah. legislation for uh, to ban conversion therapy uh, through the state house that have not passed. Okay. Uh, and it is once again, uh, you know, up in the legislature, it's up in the state house as a bill uh, that we're hoping to see pass uh, here in Massachusetts to complete uh, that work. And the fact is also that uh, conversion therapy impacts uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans folks. Mm -hmm. uh, and the efforts to ban conversion therapy also protect trans people from the very same attempts at uh, so-called therapy that we know are terribly harmful uh, to the wellness of uh, LGBTQ folks across the state. If I could also just mm -hmm. add, I mean, I sat, you know, through the hours and hours of testimony in New Hampshire on this bill. Um, and we all know, and along with all the major medical associations, that this is a really harmful practice um, that increases depression and suicidality amongst young people when you try to change who they are. Um, but it was just so amazing to hear the opposition come up and talk about how this is going to um, infringe on their free speech. And mm -hmm. we're hearing this more and more now from no, the opposition. Explain that. I, I'm not sure I follow. That, you know, folks won't be able to, therapists won't be able to say and speak freely about a sexual orientation, gender identity, mm -hmm. religious counselors and clergy won't be able to talk, conservative religious um, clergy won't be able to talk to their congregants about sexual orientation, gender identity, when that's not, in fact, you know, the purpose of the law. The purpose is to look at the conduct and not the speech. Um, but we have to, I mean, we're seeing, you know, what is a rhetorical shift of our opposition to frame 
um, opposition to equality as free speech rights. And that's mm. something we all have to be really, really cognizant about um, going forward. Even though they lost that part in Masterpiece, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, and, we'll and come, we'll, we're going to come back to the to the Masterpiece Act in a minute. AG, I want you to talk about just from a, because you've written many stories across the board in this vein about a- asking somebody to um, go to therapy to be come out and be somebody else. It's it's <laughs> it's one thing if somebody goes to a therapist and says, look, I'm not sure here. Can you help me? That's that. That's exploring your own self, right? But when parents <clears throat> do that to children, I would say that that children are still, children coming out as LGBTQ, RSD, um, are still the most vulnerable, right? Because it, you could, you could, be born into a very accepting family that's going to support whatever you do, or you can be born into a family that really wants to beat it out of you. And those, putting those children in that little microculture into conversion therapy is torture. It's uh, I know people who've been through it, and they barely survived their suicide attempts. It's It really says there is something fundamentally horrifying about you, and if you can only change it... Um, then we can accept you, but otherwise you're not deserving of love. That's that's a te- that's a terrible thing to experience at that age. Hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to the big case that just captured the headlines, and this is the one: um, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado. Um, the Supreme Court ruled. Now, I hear Jansen from a lot of analysts that it's a very limited ruling, so it's very specific to this case. Period. But I've also heard from many other people saying, how can you not take some precedence from the ruling and extrapolate it? So I'm going to have you start off because you're the legal person to help me understand. And you have this wonderful statement from Mary Bonato about understanding the meaning of this. Uh, You're absolutely right, Kelly. Mm -hmm. This is a very limited ruling. Um, What we have is a decision um, where at least seven justices have all agreed uh, that there's no constitutional right to discriminate based upon your religious belief. And hold on one second. Mm-hmm. Just in case people were under a rock, this is the case <laughs> with a gentleman uh, in Colorado who said it was against his religion to make a cake. He's an artist He's to, and makes very fancy cakes for a same-sex couple. And this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he won the case. The justices, it was... a. As you just said, the seven justices. Now, go ahead. Well, just also, yeah. just to be fair yeah. to him, mm. it wasn't just making a cake. It was making a cake celebrating their wedding. That's right? correct. Celebrating their marriage. That's, That's right. what he didn't want to do. Right. Yeah. So Charlie yeah. and David are a same-sex couple that were actually going to get married in Massachusetts because they couldn't in Colorado at that mm. time. But they wanted to celebrate with their friends and family in Denver where they lived. They went to Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, which is owned and run by Jack Phillips, um, who, when they walked in the door and they asked for a cake to celebrate their wedding— It was about a 20-second conversation. Jack didn't ask any questions about, did you want me to write anything on the cake? Did you want a topper with two men? Nothing. He just flat out and said, sorry, but I I, I can't make that cake. Um, So even though, as we were talking about before, the religious right really tried to frame this case around free speech and how forcing Jack Phillips to have to write something or design a cake uh, for a same-sex couple marrying would violate his free speech protections— That really wasn't the case here. He refused to sell a wedding cake to a couple because they're gay. And while he did ultimately win at the end of the day, the U.S. Supreme Court, nobody, only two justices on the Supreme Court, 
um, would have agreed with the baker's arguments that this baking a cake constitutes free speech or that there is some type of um, constitutional right um, to not have to follow non-discrimination laws because of your religious belief. In the end, seven justices all agreed that um, there were fact-specific reasons while, um, why the baker um, should have won, um, but didn't create any new law. So one of the things, um, it, just to highlight, uh, is that when he, somewhere in the early stages of this, was it the courtroom or other people? It was the, the Civil Rights Commission. Civil Rights Commission yes. made comments about his religion. And the court it, took it that It was even into, smaller than that. It yes. wasn't about his religion. It was about when, they said something generic, like when religions use their beliefs to discriminate, it's terrible. But the Supreme Court took that and said it was disparaging to religion or people who hold religious beliefs. Yes. And so we're factoring that in our decision, just so people are That's clear really about the it. only thing yes. they decided it on, yes. I think. Right. That's yeah. right. I mean, what Justice Kennedy, who also wrote the marriage equality decision, was really troubled by were comments that he thought showed that the commissioners were biased against religion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we can all agree that when you, you know, come before the government, when you come before the courts, um, you should it should be a, a, a religiously neutral type of um, proceeding. Um, and the court found that that hadn't happened. Um, but, you know, you know, in general, you know, the law remains uh, that non-discrimination is an important principle in our country, and that can overcome um, religious uh, objections. So I'm just going to ask, because I'm the normal person that can't go through the weeds on the legal part, it seems to me that it would have some, somebody could take that and extrapolate it to a bigger to say, I don't care what you said, I don't care what the commissioner said, in the end, Jack Phillips doesn't have to make a cake for two gay people, Period. Yeah, so, you know. so everybody that I've read, and of course, Jensen, you can correct me, has said it. what this means basically depends on who goes on the court next, hmm. right? If one of the uh, left of left of the right, I don't yeah. even want to say left of center, but hmm. left of the right justices dies or retires while Trump is in office, then it, that's what it may end up meaning. Mm -hmm. And if it if that's not what happens and the next there's a Democratic president, they get replaced by a Democratic president, then it's likely to remain limited. It depends on who's going to be on the court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two quick responses, mm -hmm. I think. One, I actually um, there is a lot that holds in the balance um, on a 5-4 balance in the Supreme Court. And so mm -hmm. it's so important that we, you know, the next justice is one who believes in the constitutional um, you know, principles of equal protection. Um, and again, I would just point that seven justices in this mm -hmm. opinion refused to constitutional right the right to discriminate. And that includes Justice Alito mm -hmm. and Justice Roberts, mm -hmm. right? So Two of the strongest conservatives if people don't get that yeah. connection. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. Thomas and Gorsuch mm -hmm. were to concur yeah. and made it clear that they would have, you know, um, upheld um, Jack uh, Phillips' right to um, free speech rights to bake a cake, mm -hmm. right? But nobody else was willing to go there. I think the bigger concern, though, is that, you know, Jack Phillips' case, um, he has become a martyr, mm -hmm. um, and he's going to embolden um, other types of cases um, across the country. And there's actually already a case right now that's pending from the U.S. Supreme Court um, called the Arlene's Flowers case with regards to a florist in a wedding. Mm -hmm. And we're waiting to see whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court Supreme Court will take that case. Mm. Uh, Mason, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, you know, I think that globally what we need to take from this is that we can take nothing for granted mm. uh, and that we need to pay attention to 
elections, local elections, larger elections to make sure that we are electing people uh, to to the Senate, uh, to, you know, important government bodies that will have some impact on who our next uh, Supreme Court justices are, uh, who will be passing these rights, who will be uh, at the helm uh, locally and nationally to make sure that we protect the uh, critical laws that protect us. Mm. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with E.J. Graff, Jansen Wu, and Mason Dunn. You just heard him. We're talking about the local and national news affecting LGBTQ communities in America. I'm really taken, um, E.J., you, you pointed this out to me, with this new initiative to put a curriculum in place in Boston that has some themes um, that would deal with gender and sexual minorities. Um, talk about, is this is this a breakthrough? Is this, What will this mean? Oh, they've been yeah. working on this for mm-hmm. ever. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, you guys may know about this. But, um, I, I know some of the people who are involved, and they've been trying to get this through for a long time. They're... Um, it's important to know this is not some mandatory curriculum where every teacher must say the same four words every year. It's um, they're optional modules that you can drop in and out different parts of the curriculum, like talking about Walt Whitman mm. uh, loving men or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if, so it's bigger than Stonewall class. is what we're, what we're saying. It's bigger than Stonewall. Okay. Yes, it says that integrated throughout American history, throughout world history, but I think it's specific to the U.S., um, and literature, uh, there have always been LGBTQ people. And those are, those, the mentions will be small. That it won't, there certainly won't be a focus on um, sexuality, the kind of thing that mm-hmm. um, people used to be afraid of with us and pro- possibly still are. Um, it's, but just knowing as you're, again, as a child growing up, that there were others that you, when you're getting that first little twinge that, oh, my God, I think I like her, mm. not him. Mm. Um, and that little moment of panic. Like, like who am I? Oh, my God, and, not me. And nobody um, else is like me. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, I know it's hard to feel that mm-hmm. now the way it was back in, you know, 1910 when I was growing up. But <laughs> the um, it, but. Even so, to have it right there in school, this is normal. You know, we've had great poets and great whatevers. I I think it's awesome. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I I fully agree. I think uh, I was actually with some uh, LGBTQ high school students last night, and they were talking about visibility and the fact that some of their teachers are out as LGBTQ and that they have introduced topics that make them feel less alone, less isolated, which we know will have a huge impact on depression and and anxiety and suicide ideation for our youth to know that they are not alone, they are not isolated. And in fact, some of the great figures in history that we study uh, were LGBTQ, I think is critical for our youth. If I just add, it's also going to be really important that we have um, LGBTQ inclusive health education as well, too. When we are seeing the highest rates of HIV, HIV infection amongst young men and boys of color, uh, you know, the silence um, in current health curriculum is actually hurting um, our community's health. Hmm. Um, and so we have much more to do to make sure that LGBTQ themes are introduced into the classroom in age-appropriate ways, but really life-saving ways as well, too. And hmm. I'll just do one quick plug. I'm actually on the advisory board of an organization called History Unerased, hmm. uh, which is an incredible organization. History Unerased? Unerased. Okay, go ahead. And what they hmm. do is they actually create modules on hmm. LGBTQ curriculum hmm. knowing that the textbooks aren't out there. The mm. curriculum material isn't out there. And so they're creating these modules, putting them online for teachers 
teachers across the country to use in their classrooms. Hmm. Uh, well, this goes with something that uh, I just took note of that's not happening here, but in uh, Maryland. Uh, Maryland is naming a school after uh, Byatt Rustin who's a civil oh, rights so activist beautiful. and uh, uh, people, some people may know that he was actually the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. Um, he was Martin Luther King's right hand person and uh, Martin Luther King was aware that he was gay uh, and there was a lot of, it was, it was really something back then uh, to be out and gay and to also be the right-hand person of someone like Martin Luther King. So it was, no, it was fraught, but um, but he had a huge role to play. Anyway, uh, there were public comments in support of naming this uh, Bayard Rustin Elementary School, and I wanted you to hear from student Jamie Griffith, who gave testimony about why this should happen. As a gay-identified student myself, even in a progressive area, I was raised with a stigma, a society that still attaches shame to my identity. Frequently in classrooms, LGBT history is skimmed over. I remember a friend telling me about learning about James Baldwin's books while never mentioning his identity as a gay man, a factor which heavily influenced his literature. This silence around gay leaders just allows for cultural stigma to grow. So a Bayard Rustin Elementary School is not only a well-deserved homage to a civil rights leader and hero, but a way to break stigma and give hope to future students who no longer have to feel trapped in the closet. And the school is going to open in September 2018. I like a little good news. <laughs> Had you all heard about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know about you know, it. And it's, yeah. <laughs> that student raised something really critical when I, I teach up at UNH about LGBTQ history and literature. And there are students who come to the class who just eyes open to these literary figures that we all know and study and these history figures we all know and study. And yet we don't ever talk about who they authentically were. And so it's it's critical, and I'm so excited. Bayard, if you don't know about Bayard Rustin, who is just a spectacular uh, progressive figure in um, in the background for years mm -hmm. before the before Martin Luther King came on the stage, um, John D'Amelio's biography of him is really mm -hmm. worth reading. Mm -hmm. What a brilliant strategist. He was a brilliant strategist. Oh, my God. Yes. Just for the longest time. Yeah. Yes. And what more could he have done if the situation had been better in terms of acceptance and culture and all that? We don't, we don't know. So, all right. Moving on. Uh, there are a couple cases, uh, Doe versus Massachusetts and I guess Doe versus Trump. And I want to talk about the Massachusetts case. These are cases. And one is brought by a, a transgender woman who's housed in a men's prison, Mason. Um, uh, please explain what's happening there. Well, actually, I'm going to kick that over to All Jansen right, and right. Glad okay. uh, since it's their case. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mason. And uh, so, I mean, Glad is representing an incredible woman, uh, transgender woman who's incarcerated and being housed in a male facility. And not only that, um, she's being forced to, you know, undergo strip searches by male guards. She's being forced to have to shower in the male uh, men's shower facilities. I mean, this is not only humiliating, but really unsafe for her as well, too. She's endured harassment um, and, and physical attacks. Um, and so this is inappropriate, particularly in a state like Massachusetts, which now has protections for transgender people in public spaces, um, but not in its um, prison system. And so we've sued the um, state um, to make sure um, that this woman is protected um, while she serves the rest of her time. And is the case coming up soon? Um, it's in the district court, so there's um, much more to come. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, you know, just uh, received a mixed order from the court um, that 
uh, affirmed that some of the ways that they were treating her um, had to change. Um, but then, in some really, in a really disturbing part of the order um, regarding the strip searches, uh, the judge said that um, while she uh, should be uh, searched um, by female guards for her the top half of her body, uh, she had to be searched by male guards for her the bottom half of her ha- body. And when you think about just how distressing and humiliating that is for any person, um, you get a real sense of just what she and other transgender inmates in our in our state are going through. I think you should make clear here that she made the transition years ago. This wasn't, I mean, you know, if if somebody is making the argument, well, that makes sense. She just transitioned a year ago. It doesn't make sense, but you see where I'm going? This was years ago. This was not unknown to anybody at this point. Yeah, and either way, um, our, you know, um, correctional um, Mm -hmm. system has a responsibility to, um, you know, um, support the health and well-being Mm -hmm. of prisoners while they're in the state's care. Um, And so we've had other cases on behalf of transgender individuals who decided to transition while they're incarcerated. Um, And, you know, just like we would treat any other medical condition Mm -hmm. like, you know, cancer um, or a heart attack, we should also provide that same level of medical care for trans prisoners. I'm going to uh, move on because I want to squeeze a couple other things in. One, I'm really, uh, this is something we've talked about on this show uh, before a couple years ago, but I, I think it's becoming, and uh, people are becoming increasingly aware, and that's gay boomers um, moving to try to face the future. There's a lot of issues about, you know, housing and ex- all that acceptance stuff that you dealt with younger comes full force now, Mason, as you are older. Yeah. yeah, and you know this is another thing where the we're uh, working with the legislature to actually pass uh, legislation that requires uh, cultural competency classes uh, and education for uh, elder care, because we know that there are so many LGBTQ identified elders who go back in the closet. Um, who don't talk about their identities or uh, fear discrimination, not only from their care providers, but from their colleagues in these facilities. Uh, And it's critical to have that kind of education uh, for for these facilities to make sure that people are safe, are protected, uh, and are able to not, not only survive, but thrive in these spaces. It's you know part of this is that the boomers were working all of these issues out, EJ. So it just comes to the assisted living facility or the wherever you're going to be, all the other places that you may uh, have to be in to live your life as an elder. It arrives there with you because you're in your same cohort, if you will. Yeah, especially <laughs> especially the leading edge boomers. Yeah, I yeah. just want to speak up for us um, lagging edge boomers. <laughs> yeah. but it's, I'm I'm hoping it'll all be different by the time I get there. But um, yes, there the. the the public opinion surveys definitely show much more acceptance among the younger people. But those people who are now 75 are going in with other people who were socialized in that in that year when it was not very friendly time. Yeah. yeah. And what also compounds the problem is that um, LGBTQ older adults um, are less likely to have children Mm. um, who are the majority of caretakers of older adults in our country. And they've been more likely to have been disowned by their um, families of birth. Um, And so they rely on their peers who are also aging with them. And so what we're seeing is a it's a looming is a crisis that will continue um, to get worse uh, if we don't start to um, increase culturally competitive care for LGBTQ older adults. Oh, well, I know it's an issue about housing because we've done that story here. I want to squeeze this last thing in. There are five um, transgender actors in a new hot series called Pose, um, and it is hot. So let's, let's let's listen to a clip. Since I was five years old, I knew I wasn't a boy. People who are like me. 
you know, trans, I guess we get ostracized and pushed aside. And when you're truly loved, there are no worries or cares. When I go to the ballroom scene, I get to be exactly who I am. It's a place you can live out of fantasy that you never lived before. And I wanted to create my own legacy. I wanted people to look at me in the ballroom scene and say, she did that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, this It's a Ryan Murphy. If people don't know him, he's the genius behind Glee and a number of other uh, series. Uh, this is capturing the excitement about the ballroom culture that's well-known in LGBTQ communities, but is mainstream now all over the place. And um, it's pretty interesting to have five... Mason, you get to speak on that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, this just it, it excites me so much. And if you're not watching this show, you gotta mm -hmm. you gotta watch it. It's it's fascinating. It is a core component of LGBTQ plus history, uh, and it is finally uh, putting trans actors in trans roles. Mm. We have for so long seen uh, cisgender actors playing trans roles, uh, which is hugely problematic and, and has uh, been something that I and many other trans folks have spoken out against. Uh, and here, finally, we are seeing actors uh, portraying roles with such authenticity. Uh, and it comes through in this show in really powerful ways. So I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a fun show. It is a historical view that uh, we need to know about and we need to talk about. And uh, I'm hoping to see some awards for some of these actors because they're fantastic. I think it'll happen. We're going to leave it there now. I want to mention that that was uh, Blanca Rodriguez played by MJ Rodriguez on the show Pose. So thank you all for joining me today. Was Thank a pleasure. So Thank Pride. you. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride. <laughs> E.J. Graff is an award-winning journalist, commentator, and author, and a senior fellow at Brandeis University Schuster in Institute for Investigative Journalism, where she researches and reports on gender and sexuality issues. Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, where he has led GLAD's legislative and policy work throughout New England. And Mason Dunn is the executive director of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition, and co-chair of the Freedom for All Massachusetts campaign. Coming up, you might have seen them on YouTube, dads proudly showing off their handiwork as hairstylists to their daughters. We celebrate Father's Day with dads who do their daughter's hair as a way to build a special dad-daughter connection. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Fathers and sons. That's usually the first image which comes to mind when the conversation is about fathers and their children. And multiple studies have confirmed that fathers' positive involvement in their sons' lives is critical to their emotional development. But studies also show that fathers have an equally critical role to play in their daughter's development. And a lot of dads are using a hairbrush and barrettes to build that special connection. In celebration of Father's Day, we've invited dads who do their daughter's hair to talk about dads and daughters. Joining me from WMFE radio station in Orlando, Florida, are Philip Morgese, YouTuber and president of Daddy Daughter Hair Factory from Daytona, Florida. Hello. Oh, hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. 
Also <laughs> joining him in the same studio, Donald Gadson, Jr., teacher and YouTuber of Family for a Lifetime from Orlando, Florida. Welcome, Donald. Hey, Kelly. Thank you so much. Oh, great. And joining me in studio here in Boston, John Bedelement, Director of Programs for the Fatherhood Project at Mass General Hospital. Well, I'm delighted to have this conversation. Let me begin this way. I'm just scrolling through YouTube one day, and I run across these adorable videos of dads doing their their daughter's hair. And I am so delighted, tickled, warmed, all of that stuff, because it reminded me of my father. My father's gone a long time now. And just to see the interaction with the fathers. So first, I want to let everybody uh, hear a bit of what I saw on YouTube uh, with uh, a number of fathers doing their daughter's hair. Good morning, YouTube. So we thought we'd give you a little peek into what it's like to get us ready in the morning to get out the door. Uh, one of the things I have to do as the stay-at-home dad is take care of Selena's hair, which I've been doing since she was about three. Really? He can't do it. I think he can do it. I'm feeling confident. Dad, start with the bottom. This is going to take me five minutes on its own. Gotta make sure her curls and all that is, is moisturized, you know. That's what my mother told me. It, it looks easy, but it's actually really hard. Boom. Boom. That's my girl. Part of uh, some of those uh, reactions were from a, a uh, video that BuzzFeed put together, and they gave these dads a five-minute challenge to see if they could do the hairdos in five minutes. It was pretty funny. Uh, so that's it's just a very sweet video, and it's a sweet celebration, I think, uh, John Bedelement, of the relationship between daughters and fathers. Um, you're the expert. Let's talk about that special relationship between daughters and dads. Yeah. Hello, Callie. <laughs> I wanted to say that uh, it is a special relationship, and I have a 15-year-old daughter myself, so I've gone through my, my share of, I'll say, hair brushing, pigtails, probably at the most complex. Uh, but what I think we know very clearly from research and from many years of programming that I've done with dads and daughters is that that connection is a special one and that the earlier dads get involved and get engaged, whether it's doing hair, um, playing, um, listening to music, spending time together, uh, that the better those girls do as they get older. So the, the earlier, the younger, the better. And it's very clear that the quality of that relationship makes a huge difference um, in everything from self-esteem to the onset of sexual activity uh, to her, um, the chances that she'll be a healthier adult. I've read that sometimes it's awkward for fathers. They feel a little uncomfortable with the daughters. Even if they would struggle with building a relationship with the son, there's something about maybe the gender divide that makes them initially feel more uncomfortable with daughters. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, mm -hmm. certainly. There, there's, and again, there's, there's research to show that dads actually end up spending more time with their sons over the course of their childhood and adolescence, which is unfortunate, but it doesn't. It's not surprising. And one of the main reasons for that is the level of activity sharing that they do. So daughters, as they get older, 
five, six, seven, eight, and begin to have interests that perhaps the dad doesn't share. You know, I think when they're younger, doing tea parties and doing their hair, those things can be easier for dads to do. Not for all dads, but then as they begin to become girls and young women, the dads, they do struggle sometimes to find shared activities. And that's really what it's about, is finding things that you can do together that both of you enjoy. Or uh, if you don't, as a dad, enjoy what she enjoys, uh, the the saying, fake it till you make it, is really, <laughs> is really applicable here. And if you don't, for example... Uh, like the music she listens to, it's really important to learn to like the music. Um, and I, I have a uh, lot of experience with Taylor Swift, perhaps <laughs> earlier than I had uh, expected. There you go. That's my guest, John Bedelement. He's the director of programs for the Fatherhood Project at Mass General Hospital. Well, the two guys who are in the studio together in Florida, you two really know about connecting with those daughters. So, Philip Morgis, tell me about how you and Emma came together with your doing her hair. So it first started out when I became a single dad. That was when I realized basically how crucial it was to keeping her hair under wraps. And what I mean by that is uh, keeping the tangles out. Uh, At an early age, I learned uh, just preventative maintenance of how to take care of her hair. And then as she started to get older, we learned uh, that there was a lot of joy in us spending that time daily. Uh, We would spend it and we'd look up uh, videos on YouTube of different hairstyles and we would try to you know, try to work it out. Uh, a lot of the times I failed or the hairstyle didn't look good, but she never once uh, criticized me for it. <laughs> she was always very uplifting and supportive and said she'd love it, even if it was a crooked pigtail or a, a sloppy braid. It didn't seem to matter. Um, and then as she as she started to get older, uh, my friends and, uh, you know, people I had met throughout uh, and on social media were starting to ask for advice with hair. And that was really what started uh, Daddy Daughter Hair Factory was the demand. I just noticed a lot of dads uh, were struggling. And I said, well, maybe I can give them some instruction. And uh, here we are, two, two and a half years later, uh, owning a nonprofit. We have 23 instructors across the country teaching free classes in their community. Uh, and it all started with a simple idea. It's just uh, our motto. It's uh, not about the braid, it's about the bond. Philip, you and Emma are adorable. I want to just you. take a little listen from a short little snippet of part of your videos on, on YouTube. Then it looks like you attempted something special and custom and amazing, and, and it still looks incredible, right? Just a bow. So guys, this is cool, right? I mean, like someone's going to see this and they're going to be like, oh, it's out of this world. It is out of this world. What's the amazing part is you spent some time with your daughter. That's the beautiful part about it, right? This is for you, Carrie Fisher. It's not perfect, but it's not about the bun. It's about the bond. Same bond that she had with her mom. I love that. And I love how when you finish it, you turn her around and the both of you are smiling from ear to ear. I mean, you could just see the connection and it just makes me melt, I have to say. It's just a wonderful thing. And you started working with Emma when she was how old, Philip? Just a year old. Yeah, that was see? when I first learned yeah. how to successfully add a hair clip. <laughs> Isn't that something? Well, Donald Gatson Jr., your, your little one was close to that age. She seemed very tiny when I saw the first videos of the two of you. Gia, how old was she? You got it right. She was right around one. And so that, that process actually started 
a while back, even before Gia, my wife and I are actually foster parents here in, in Orange County in Orlando. And uh, we, we had about seven uh, foster children come through our home in the span of five years, five of which were, were girls. Uh, our first set of, of placements was uh, twin girls who came to us at, at two weeks old, and then they left us at the age of two. So I was thrusted into the, the wonderful world of, of girl hair care, mainly because it's kind of like you're, you're playing man-on-man defense with, with twins. And so uh, so, so Gia is, is actually a, a, a recipient of, uh, of all the years of that trial and error of, of doing afros. Um, I like that, Phil. It's not about the bun. It's, it's about the bond. Although the braid the bond. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to say it's not about the afro. It's about the attachment. How about that? Boom. Gotcha. I love it. I like it. So, yeah. Let's take a listen to uh, one of your YouTube videos with Gia. So the three ponytail thing didn't work, right? And now it didn't work. So we're just going to do one big ponytail on top. No, we're going to do one big pony on the top. Gia, look, you got one ponytail on the top. Good job, Daddy. I'm Callie Crossley. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guests are Donald Gatson Jr., YouTuber of Family for a Lifetime. You just heard him. And Philip Morgis, YouTuber of Phil and Emma from Daddy Daughter Hair Factory. And also with me, John Bedelement. He is head of the Fatherhood Project at Mass General Hospital. And I'm turning back to you, John, because you've just been smiling as you've listened to this, these two guys talk about their relationship with their daughter and how they built it through hair, actually. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, well, first thing is, as I said, uh, my daughter's 15. I'm allowed nowhere near her hair. So let's at start. This point. At this point, let's start there. Yeah. Um, but but what, both Phil and Donald um, said something that's really important. Uh, Philip, in your, the, the saying that it's about the bond, not about the bond, the bond. And, um, and Donald, what you were just saying, about having that time together is so important um, at a, an early age. And I think what's what's a great opportunity that you're creating, it's a great opportunity for you to talk while you're doing something. The, the sort of the equivalent, and this can be done with girls and boys, but we hear a lot of times with boys, they call it action talk, you know, shooting hoops, you, while you talk about what's going on. I think um, one of the things that's important, and I have an activity called the quiz, uh, how well do you know your child? That's one of the things you can talk about, which is, and you can even ritualize this when, when you're sitting down doing their hair, which is dad takes a quiz as to how well he knows what's going on in his daughter's life. So it, you know, one of the questions, what is something that she's doing in school this week? Uh, what is something that uh, she feels good about accomplishing recently? What is a disappointment that she's had? Uh, and then what is something she loves doing with you? Asking these, seeing if you can get these kind of questions right on your quiz makes for a really good conversation. And the earlier that that dialogue, that two-way dialogue develops, because she can then tell you if you got it right or wrong, uh, which she usually will, um, <laughs> is, is really important as she grows older that you have an open two-way dialogue because that's the basis for trust. And as she gets older, you want her to be able to come to you to feel safe, to feel good about sharing 
the good and the bad, everything that's going on in her life. Um, and I hear that from dads all the time. I want the kind of connection, the kind of dialogue that she seems to have with her mother. So to the two of you, uh, Philip and Donald, and Philip, you start, uh, was there a time before you got to this point where you're so connected and you built it through uh, working with, in your case, Philip, Emma, and in your case, Donald, Gia, and before that you had the, the foster girls, where you were a little apprehensive? Uh yeah, I can honestly say that I was very scared. I, you know, when when I first found out that I was going to have a daughter, at first my first reaction was, "Oh, this is uh, this is my luck for being the horrible male <laughs> figure for so many women that I was trying to date." And um, you know, I was like, "This is just karma coming back to me to to haunt me, so I can experience." You know, when I was picking up the girl for a date. I can experience what their dad was going through, <laughs> seeing a guy like me walk through the door. Uh, so it really made me change a lot about who I was because when I first found out I was going to become a dad, I wasn't necessarily, uh, I wasn't steady in life. I didn't have, I just, I mean, I had a job, but I didn't really know what I was doing. But I did know that I wanted to be a good parent. I always had very involved parents. Uh, they're still very involved and very active in helping me out, even though they, aren't together, they've always put us ahead of themselves. So I had good role models when it came to that. When I when I became a single dad, it was like, okay, I need to really put into uh, uh, my priorities, uh, making sure that I'm raising her right. That's my mm -hmm. guest, Philip Morgese. He's a YouTuber and president of Daddy Daughter Hair Factory. Donald Gatson, same question to you, Donald Gatson Jr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Phil. Thank you for that, man. That's that. That's really inspirational to hear. Um, Appreciate that's, it, brother. That's really, really cool, man. Thank you. Um, I think for me, you know, and, and again, kind of going back to our foster parent journey, what was so crazy about my identity as a dad and then as a girl dad was so much of that experience for me early on was this anger at the fathers of our foster daughters. And that quickly developed into having much more of, of a grace because it's kind of like okay big dog like you are the the primary you know fatherhood uh role model now in their life so it's easy to, to kind of be judgmental or it's easy to, to to be upset at that dad or even at the, at the mom for whatever um they did that their their children would be in your care but like so much of what this child needs now is is for you to be present you know kind of kind of and I, I i thought it was so fitting with, with what phil said um, I think there there sometimes is a sentiment that that girls can be a punishment for for what a man did in, in his past, and I I think <laughs> I'm seeing more and more that that that's probably not the case, man. Like I, I've I've really wholeheartedly embraced uh, the blessing and, and and really the the great responsibility of of raising a daughter that is secure, of raising a daughter that's strong, of raising a daughter that's not afraid to to embrace her uh, her femininity like at its at its peak. And the best thing that, that honestly I can do. To, to, to aid in that is to love her mom well, but, th but then also to, to give her the, the security of daddy's not going anywhere. And I think, I think that's kind of, kind of both what, what Phil and I are saying is that, man, like we're, we're here, like we're not going anywhere and, and we're just not here to, to be present, but like we really want to be, as John said earlier, like we want to be connected and, and, and attached because that's ultimately what's, what's, what's going to make you um, into a healthy and whole woman, you know, as you then go out and, Whenever you're 55, get married. So, <laughs> 50, married 55. At 55. Married at 55. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's Donald Gatson Jr., YouTuber of Family for a Lifetime from Orlando, Florida, and father of Gia. I want each of you, 
Philip and Donald to tell me because your, your your YouTubes are out there for people to respond to, and they have uh, in great numbers. I'd like one story from each of you from a father who really connected with what he saw beyond the hair, but looking at the two of you interacting with Emma and Gia just got sort of a renewed purpose in how to build a connection with his own daughter. And I'll start with you this time, Donald Gatson. Oh, man, I was looking at Phil like, <laughs> what are you going to say to that, Phil? Yeah. Um, for me, I think, and, and the reason why our channel is called Family for a lot of times is because, and once again, I, I know I'm going back to, to the whole foster care thing, um, we we quickly realized that there are different types of families. And so even, you know, with, with Phil, it's like, man, you know, a, a family is what, is what you make it. And, and whenever life throws you curveballs and whenever you, you, you experience, whatever you experience, um, the family dynamic is is really what what you're making. And so for me, uh, just to answer the question, the, the feedback that I've gotten has been more so related to like, wow, you guys are a beautiful family. And, um, when it came down to, to, to some of the other videos that G and I do together that, that are called Day With Daddy, some of the feedback that, I, that I've gotten is, man, like, that looks like a lot of fun. Or um, someone that I, that I mentor, a young, young man for a number of years, uh, he hit me on, on Instagram and said to me uh, privately, he said, man, like, you make me want to be a dad. And I, and I never really had that, that particular desire. It's kind of like, that's, that's a win for me, you know, that, that just by kind of sharing the, the trial and error of fatherhood and, and really not making a pretty ponytail, like it actually looks not that good, but you saw it and that made you want to uh, experience this because you realize that it's more so about the process and it's not about like the the end result, whatever we think that is. So that's that's been really cool for us. Philip, same question. I have one story in mind and it's one that sticks with me. Uh, it'll stick with me forever. I was doing a hair class and I had traveled three hours to get to this one. It was at a gymnasium. Uh, after the class, a few of the dads had asked if they can hang out afterwards and learn how to do a French braid. And a French braid is not something I typically teach in the class because it, for anybody that doesn't work well with their fingers, they can really struggle through that one. And I find that discouraging when people can't uh, complete a hairstyle. So, uh, of course, I agreed to it. After the class, we hung out for an extra 30 minutes and I start teaching these guys how to do a French braid. Well, one of the daughters who was unusually old, she was 17 in the class and and our typical class has uh you know two to uh, nine years old that's the age range that we usually see in the class um so after the father completed the french braid he's he takes a picture of it and he shows it to the daughter and she starts crying and 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 i'm at this point i'm confused i'm like why is she crying it wasn't that bad you know <laughs> and uh and so he uh, she starts crying and then that father's the the father starts crying and then the dads in the in the room start crying. Everyone is super emotional about this French braid. And, of course, I just start crying. I don't even understand the <laughs> meaning behind it. I'm just very emotional about this. And I'm like, well, what's going on? What is with the French braid? Well, come to find out, uh, the daughter had uh, lost her mother a year before. And doing hair was something that they did to bond, to bond together. And this daughter goes to cheerleading practice, and one of the rituals that she had with her mother was that she would get her hair French braided before cheerleading. And she couldn't, you know, now her parents, because she lost her mother to cancer, uh, she wasn't having her hair French braided. And I think that was a part of uh, maybe the confidence she felt on the field when she was cheerleading. So now that the father was able to French braid, they can pick up where they left off, and she can now feel whole again. And it was just 
I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It was a very emotional story. That's the story when people ask for my story. That is the one. John, back to you in hearing what these guys have said about the feedback they're getting and and what they're engaging in. Um, what do you say? I mean, just hearing that story, both those stories, uh, I get a little verklempt, as, as they say. But I think what's so critical and so important in what both you guys are doing and all dads that are making an effort, and I think a lot more dads today are wanting to make a connection, is that you're building self-esteem in her. You're modeling dignity. You're modeling a way of treating girls that, frankly, in today's world, we need a lot more men to do. You're modeling a way of treating girls with respect, with dignity, as I said, with love and with care. And frankly, that's important for your bond. It's also important for more men to understand that that's what girls need. And our sons need that too. They need to see that treating girls and women with respect has nothing to do with being violent or being aggressive. It has everything to do with what you guys are doing. Well, Thank I certainly guys. had a great dad, and um, he did everything with me except my hair. But <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, he was great, and um, I am inspired by what you two are doing, Philip and Donald. So in closing, what might you say to other fathers out there who may find your YouTube channel or may not, may just hear this conversation about continuing to build the special connection that you have with your daughters? I think I would just say that it takes a whole lot less than you think. You know, Phil and I are, are doing hair. As we both said, it's like, we're doing hair, but we're not really doing hair. You know what I'm saying? So, it, but it, it just shows you that, like, it, it just takes you being, you being present and, and you being involved and, and not just being there per se, but, like, really, as, as John has said, you know, um, like, you really take the time to, to know her. Yeah, very true. And I, I think uh, my closing words would be uh, whatever you do, whether it be doing hair, learning how to cook, or working with makeup, whatever it is, arts and crafts, whatever you do, just take the time. Find something to bond over and do it. And that's all you need. Thank you both for joining me and happy Father's Day. Yes, thank <laughs> you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Morgese is a YouTuber. It's Phil and Emma from Daddy Daughter Hair Factory, and he's president of Daddy Daughter Hair Factory from Daytona, Florida. Donald Gatson Jr., YouTuber of Family for a Lifetime from Orlando, Florida. And my other guest, John Bedelement, Director of Programs for the Fatherhood Project at Mass General Hospital. He's also author of The Modern Dad's Dilemma, How to Stay Connected with Your Kids in a Rapidly Changing World. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Wakanda Loingahai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.